Hi. Welcome to the Book I Had to Write podcast. I'm Paul Zakshevsky. For today's episode, I'm excited to try something different. I recently discovered a new show that I want to share with you. It's a podcast called The Bleeders, and this show focuses on book writing and publishing. Host Courtney Kosak brings you transparent conversations with authors, agents, and people in the publishing industry about how to write and sell books. The title is a nod to that famous quote by Ernest Hemingway, there is nothing to writing, all you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. In this episode, Courtney Kosak talks to the writer Chloe Caldwell. Caldwell has charted a pretty unique path for herself over the course of four nonfiction books, and she tends to blend confessional and cultural observations that may remind some listeners of people like Cheryl Strayed and Megan Dom. But Caldwell writes in her own gritty, funny voice. Here, Caldwell talks about how she discovered that path as a writer, and she also discusses everything from cold-querying agents to small presses to trusting your vision. As a book coach, I've worked with writers who want to blend highly personal stories with cultural observation into a kind of memoir plus. I think if you're interested in that kind of writing, today's episode provides a great model for you. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this special preview episode of The Bleeders. We met at a Gotham Writers Workshop class and like we did some kind of pact like that, that we're both going to write a manuscript or I think it was 100 pages and then send them to each other. And he mailed me his, he wrote his on the typewriter and I probably mailed him mine. Yeah. Oh my gosh, friends, this is a stellar episode. Today's guest is one of my writing mentors, Chloe Caldwell. She spills all the tea about the writing pact that led to her first book. And she also shares how she built her literary community with the help of Twitter and the Rumpus circa 2012. So I wrote this like crazy where I write and it kind of like for 2012 Twitter, it kind of like blew up, which is like nothing, probably like 10 people, but like it felt like it blew up because everyone was leaving comments and Cheryl under the pseudonym of Dear Sugar started posting it and tweeting about it. And I didn't know who Dear Sugar was because no one did, she wasn't out yet. Chloe's formed her own unique path in the literary scene, and it's one that I really admire. And she gives us the play-by-play in today's episode. It's pretty inspirational. So, here we go. There's nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. Welcome to The Bleeders, a podcast and support group about book writing and publishing. I'm writer and podcaster Courtney Kosak, and each week I'll bring you new conversations with authors, agents, and publishers about how to write and sell books. Hi, I'm Chloe Caldwell. I'm the author of four books, two essay collections, which are called Legs Get Led Astray and I'll Tell You in Person, and the novella Women, and the recently released memoir called The Red Zone, A Love Story. So I reached out to Chloe after I read her first essay collection, Legs Get Led Astray. I was just so moved by her honesty and grittiness, and I thought it was cool that she was about my age, and I just, I found it very relatable. 
And then I started taking writing classes from her shortly after, and she's become a mentor to me over the years. Chloe, I'm so stoked that you're doing this with me. I looked up and I read Legs Get Led Astray in 2014. So that was when we first connected. Interesting. So two years after it came out. Yep. Yeah. So let's just do the lightning round that I have been doing with everyone. When did you first identify as a writer? I identified as a writer, I think, like I put the cart before the horse because it was a good practice for me. I'm not sure if that was advice I had received or if I came up with it on my own, but I started to just experiment with introducing myself as a writer when I hadn't even published anything. And I think that was helpful just to start to embody it and go through like the awkwardness of being like, yeah, I'm a writer. So I started doing that probably in like 2011. So about 10 years ago, and I was taking writing classes. And I remember my brother had said something to me because, and he said, you should be a writer. And I said, why? And he said, because you talk about writing all the time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I was only journaling. So that was when I, yeah, that's when I was like, okay, this is something I can be and do. But you were like pretty young when you were writing into the sun and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I was like 23. Yeah. Uh, What's your all-time favorite book? Right now, I'm going to say Writers and Lovers by Lily King. It's a novel that I'm obsessed with. You've got to read it. What's the premise? Uh, It takes place in the 90s. And it's about this woman, young woman, who's a waitress in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it's great because you're reading at a time like there's no phones. And her mom has just died. And she is trying to be a novelist. And she's like living in this little shed and dog sitting um, and waitressing. And it's sort of, it's just about finding really your voice like as a woman she has a lot of men in her life and she only knows about male writing and been a minute since I read it but it's basically just her trajectory um and then like all the it's very subtle but it's like all the things that men say to her the opening scene is like she goes outside and her neighbor says to her oh you've been you've been writing and she says yeah and he says something to the something to the effect of it must be nice to like, to think you have something to say. And that paralyzes her just having this comment. Um, So it's really just like this male dominated world and this woman becoming a novelist, um, waitressing, dating various people. It's fantastic. Oh, good wreck. What's your dream writing routine? In a cabin in the woods. Does everybody say that? A cabin in the woods where I can go on like go on long walks. I'm a get up early person. So I would get up early, let's say like five. Let's say I would meditate and do yoga and then get some caffeine and start writing. And then at like, you know, one o'clock or something, break and eat something and go on a walk and then read and watch movies at night. Are you by yourself? Totally. Yeah. (laughs) So you're like binging. This is a binge session in the woods. Yeah, it's a binge session in the woods. Yes. I like that one. What's the real writing routine? I don't think I have a routine. I don't think I have a routine because I don't, I don't get a, I don't like consistently write. And like, I've been able to be productive that way. So I sort of believe in it. Right. It's like, I have four books out. So I think that works for me. Um, 
I write when I have an idea or I'm excited about something, something's on my mind, or I'm working on a project, right? Like a book that I may, may get published and might not, but at the time I just, I commit to it. And so when I have something I'm working on, I definitely am writing more regularly. Otherwise, these days I'm probably just writing if I think of a pitch or think of an idea for an essay, but then let's say I, I start writing, you know, a book, then I'll probably get more into it and have a little bit more of a routine. Like, I definitely think that there, it's great to like touch the work every day, as they say, mm -hmm. but I definitely, I definitely don't do that. Okay. Lots of questions, but we'll talk about the book writing in a second. Um, are you still an avid journaler? I know you were at the beginning of your career. No, I'm not. It sucks. I used to journal because I was in motion. Like I was on the subway or the bus or a train and, or at a cafe, like walking around, you know, in a, in a city or whatever. And now probably pandemic a little bit and getting older and stuff, there's like less to journal. I feel like you journal when your life is like really unstable because right. you like, life is always a crisis in your twenties. And now that my life is like stable, I feel I don't go to the journal as much as when I was like in despair. Uh -huh. um, I still think I would love to start waking up and journaling and I know it's really helpful. I would, but I would probably be doing it more for like mental health reasons. Yeah. <laughs> That's like your thirties, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, your thirties compared to your twenties. So, but at the same time, I'm like, that's okay. That's okay to like not journal. And I have boxes and boxes of journals. I'm like, I, I can't keep making these. So <laughs> I, once, once writing turns from like a hobby-ish thing or like a passion hobby to like your job, you kind of stop yeah. the part that got it to be your job, which is kind of crazy and, and sad, but I think it's common. Yeah, totally. What's one piece of writing that makes you jealous you didn't write it? um probably the novel i said writers and lovers by lily king and also the book motherhood by sheila hetty i also really like sharon old's poetry she has one book called stag's leap that i think is really beautiful it's this purple like slim book and i believe that it was named after a wine <laughs> stag's leap and it is is different poems. I want to say that they're about grief and um, the narrator's father had passed away, but she's also like very, she's very funny and just re really, really lovely writing. Oh, nice. So first let's start by, I want to say you are like exactly the model for why I did not successfully do this. I should have just done it. But I try to convince my parents like that I don't need to go to college and like it's going to be OK. I'm going to be an artist. It actually could be to my benefit not going. And they were like, hell no. But you're the model that I was talking about when I was trying to convince them to do that, like, you know, when I was making my plan. So how do you think about that now and are you glad you made that decision and what do you think the kind of impact has been on your career because you kind of just went for it i did it's really it's really wild the way things have worked out it's not that i knew i wanted to be an artist even i didn't have that i didn't have that thought even the way you did but i knew i didn't want to go to college <laughs> I knew myself like I've always been very self-aware which is lends itself to like what I write um personal essay and stuff so 
I knew if I went to college, I was going to not go to class and party. Like there's no accountability. So I'm really, really glad I didn't waste my parents' money. I really don't see a world where I got to college and I was like, I'm academic. I love that. And like did well. I, I also couldn't get into college because I was such a poor high school student. So I would have had, if I really had cared, I could have done like, and I did go to community college very briefly, but I could have like done two years of community college and then gone to another college, but that wasn't what I wanted. I was very interested in the real world, whatever mm-hmm. that meant to me at the time. And what that meant to me at the time was like living in a city and working at a coffee shop. <laughs> like, I just thought that that was the life, you know, that's what I wanted. And I knew I wanted something. And then as the years went by and I was like 19, 20, 21, I knew I had to like express something and I didn't really know my medium. And I tried like different types of I don't know, like drawing, right? And collaging uh-huh. different things, trying to like find my thing. And then once I started taking writing classes, the response of the class and the way they reacted to like, to what I had written with these really strong responses of positivity, like they were very moved. I think got me like, oh, okay, maybe this is, this is it. So I, I think for me, college was, was not the right decision. I mean, I think even high school wasn't the right decision. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know, like I could have been in like an alternative school, but like the way these public schools were working was not, it's not what I was interested in. And I liked reading and writing. So yeah, I'm glad I trusted myself on that. And then I think, you know, there are repercussions of it financially, for sure. It's always a hustle. But I mean, it's like that any, like I went and I, it never... Most people don't even know. Unless you have a corporate job. Like it's a hustle for anyone unless you have a corporate job, but to have a corporate job, you needed other things. Yeah, exactly. So yes, that's a good point. There's a lot of people I know who, who went and then are in the same position that I'm in. Yeah. So, but I think just financially, just choosing an, an unconventional path and being an artist has its challenges, but I personally don't think I could live another way even with like the financial stress and stuff it's just kind of it's the and like you said I started doing it so young it's kind of like my pattern my rhythm now is like putting out these like indie books and like it's just my rhythm well kudos I think that was a really smart move um (laughs) yeah and oh you know it's so funny on that same note so I just had the red zone book release um in Brooklyn right and I did this conversation with another writer Zaina Arafat And we had this, you know, like intelligent conversation about writing. My mom was there and my mom, after the talk, we were all at a restaurant. My mom's like drinking wine. And when I, when I leave, she hugs me goodbye. She whispers in my ear, you didn't need to go to college. You were right. Oh, I love that. (laughs) It was so funny. And then she called me the next day, like to tell me the same. I'm like, yeah, you told me you were drunk. You don't remember. You already told me. But that was like kind of satisfying because at the time she was so worried about me and, you know, thought that college was, I'm like, college isn't the answer. You'll be more worried about me if I'm at college. But anyway, that was very like satisfying and full circle. I love that. Yeah. My dad ha- had a similar moment like a year oh, ago. Really? Where he was like, yeah, that stuff in high school you were totally right about, but yes. <laughs> it is validating. Okay. Legs get led astray. So let's tee it up. Tell listeners the premise. The premise of legs get led astray. Um, <laughs> I don't know. No. It, um <laughs> so long ago now right so like Scale Let Astray my first book was when I really found the personal essay genre so 
the premise is, I guess. You're that girl in New York working at the coffee shop, right? Exactly. And like, I captured that time period. Mm -hmm. And I, it's like, I wrote the book when I was like 23, 24, 25. And then it came out when I was 26. So I captured it um, while it was happening, which I've done with my other books too. But that, you know, for, for being so young and having like an essay collection come out about your life is, is definitely different. So yeah, there's a lot of friendship, relationships, sex, and then there's like longer narrative essays, but there are also some kind of more fragmented, um, like listy essays. And I think I was very influenced at that time by Lydia Yuknovich and Cheryl Strayed because my book came out in 2012 and that's I believe the same year Wild and Chronology of Water mm -hmm. came out. So I had been like reading their essays and reading about them. And I remember once I did a reading and someone was like, that sounded like Lydia Yuknovich. It's like, yeah, because I mimic her, her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I think it's like very influenced on um, Eileen Miles and just different people and I think it's incredibly raw and I'm really glad that I did it because someone is reading it now a friend of mine I was on a walk with her the other day and I was like is it so dated like there's mentions of like eye shuffles and iPods and CDs uh -huh. and stuff so I think that that's cool though you know it's yeah, like it's retro. like a timestamp. yeah so it's sort of like an I don't know it's probably like my most unhinged kind of book um <laughs> but it's really special to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well I fell in love with it and that's how I first found you so I guess you were taking these classes you'd been journaling a lot but how did the first draft come out or like you know draft-ish I know it's probably went through some different iterations yeah it didn't even go through that many because it's like such a small press that I was on it didn't even go through that many of structures at all it was pretty straightforward it did go through a ton of titles so I think I got obsessed with I just I had this goal of like I want to put a book out I really want to put a book out um, and I'm going to put one out. And I was emboldened by the fact that I was reading a bunch of books on micro presses and indie presses. So I found this press called Future Tense Books that had published a book called Everything Was Fine Until Whatever by Chelsea Martin. And I was like, this book is weird. Like, what is up with this book? This girl's my age. She's really weird. It's like, even the way those micro press books look, like they look uh -huh. different, than like a real quote unquote real book. So I thought that was really interesting. So I started reading like all these, I was living in Portland. So I would like go to the bookstore and yeah, just, or Seattle, sorry, I was living in Seattle. And I would look for these books that were lesser known. And that made me think, oh, well, if they can put one out and they're unknown, then maybe I could if I put it out with a tiny press. Uh -huh. So I think I just took, I had been writing so much. I was like, that's when I probably did have more of a writing routine and like wrote every day. I was just like churning it out constantly really for fun. And I just put everything in a document as far as I remember and started moving things around. Kind of what I still do, right? It's like just moving things around, put it in a document. I had so many different titles um, and I just, I played with it. I played with it that way. And, you know, I probably, yeah, I probably had a version of it in 2010 or 2009 that was like evolved a little bit later when I had like more essays to include and I had some revisions and stuff, but it was always an essay collection. 
happen. I always thought of it that way. I think I read something not recently back way back then, like you and a friend emailed each other or something like you had some sort of 30 day challenge or something. Does it ring a bell or am I crazy? <laughs> um, it kind of rings a bell. My, or like you yeah. were like, I'm going to write 100 pages in this month yes. or something like that. You're right. You're right. It was an ex-boyfriend and I who had met in a writing class. And yeah, oh, I we love did that not- it's an ex-boyfriend. That makes it even better. <laughs> totally. We met at a Gotham Writers Workshop class and like we did some kind of pact like that, that we're both going to write a manuscript or I think it was 100 pages and then send them to each other. And he mailed me his, he wrote his own typewriter and I probably mailed him mine. Yeah. So we were like, since we were kind of like, we were dating, I mean, really we were having like an affair, but we were like really into writing. So Is this the was- affair essay guy? Yeah. Oh my God. That's so good. Okay. Together. <laughs> this is a little inside baseball if you haven't read the essay collection, but that's a good reason why you should. <laughs> yeah, you, know what, you know, there's an essay in there, the essay, yeah, called Yes to Carrots. Like, I feel like that's the best essay I've ever written. And that that's I, such a good essay. <laughs> I wrote it over 10 years ago. And that is probably like, the strongest essay and like people still Courtney will like message me and be like I saw yes to carrots at the Walgreens or whatever but yeah I was writing I was like writing a lot about him and dating and just love triangles and sex and affairs and um yeah so in a way it was helpful to have the relationship I had with him because we were really encouraging to each other and like inspiring each other and one to impress each other so that's probably a reason why I was like writing so much. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, just quick side note. Does he have four books? <laughs> I'm just curious. He doesn't have one. He doesn't. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. Okay, yeah. moving on. What was the word count of where Legs Get Led Astray landed? And also I wanted you to tell the story of how you landed on that title because it's lyrics, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know the word count of that book. You think I know that? Like off the top of my head? I'm not a word count person. I have the book. I could tell you the page count. I mean, it's a slim book, right? So it's probably, I'm going to guess that it's probably like 35,000 words. Okay. If women is, tw- I know women is 20,000 words because I just, that one I do know. That's a good question. You're right. I do know my other books. I remember I'll tell you in person had to be like around like 50,000 for like an essay collection, like thicker or whatever. But I'm looking at like Skeleton Stray. If women's 20, like Skeleton Stray is probably like 35. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they probably didn't care. You're right. When you went to that indie press, they probably. Oh, they don't not care like... about word. They don't care about word now. I mean, it's cheaper for them to print less, right? Like that wasn't a thing with that book because it was a micro press, which is great like that was really helpful otherwise I wouldn't have that book out the title yeah I had some really bad other titles like Bob Dylan lyrics I'm like oh god I don't even remember but um like Say Let Astray was from a song I loved by the band Aquaville River they are from Austin Texas and there's like this whole passage about change and things changing I don't know and, and legs get led astray was in this section of the song that I loved and it just I think I probably had it as an epigraph first and then Mm -hmm. it just really stuck and I really liked it and then I think it was my publisher back then who said like and I 
I've carried this with me. It's like, think about it as an acronym too, because people are going to be shortening it if they're writing reviews. And mm-hmm. we were like, it was like LGLA is actually really good. And it was like, okay, so it stuck. So landing the press, did you just cold query them? Did you know somebody? I cold queried, but I had done my research because like I said, Chelsea Martin had been published on it. So I like went to the website and looked at all the other books and I still do that to this day, but that was how I was like, okay, this seems my speed. These Uh are like, you know, maybe not, they're not well-known writers and some of them are young and it's usually like their first book and indie presses have the liberty of putting out more edgy stuff and less polished and more raw and stuff that mainstream presses wouldn't go for. So I did, I did cold pitch and I didn't even think about, you know, me, I'm like not a pitcher. So I was like, I didn't even think about the words pitch or query. Honestly, I just wrote the email. And what was interesting about that, I think I sent the email in like 2009 and the publisher there said, oh, this is cool, but we have like a bunch of books lined up. So it's probably not for us right now, but keep in touch. And I was like, okay. And what ended up happening, thank God I had sent that email because what happened was it was either a year later or two years later, he reached out again, or he reached out rather and said, hey, do you still have that essay collection? And I was like, Yes. And I always thought, I don't know. I always thought it was maybe because I had started publishing a lot more. I was like writing for the rumpus uh, then. And like yeah. Cheryl Strades was starting. She would like kind of post some of my stuff. So I was like, huh, I wonder if that's like energetically, maybe like he saw something on the rumpus. And I was like, oh, that's the, that's the girl who I have no idea who she is, you know, but he said, do you still have it? I said, yes. And he said, can you send it to me? And I, I sent it. And luckily I had been working on it for the past two years. So I actually had like a better version to send. So I sent that and then they took it. Nice. When did you make the Cheryl connection prior to even your first book? Yeah. Yeah. It was before Legs Get Let Astray came out. Um, 2012 was a really big literary year for me. And I, I miss that year. <laughs> I just miss like culture. I miss everything about 2012. I don't know if you have years like that where you're just like, that was like a cool year. Yeah. Um, what happened with Cheryl Strayed was the rumpus brought us together and because they had a column called Where I Write uh-huh. and Roxanne Gay did one, Lydia Yukonovich did one. I think that's where I found Lydia's writing. And then I was like, I want to do that. That's like such a fun prompt. So I wrote this like crazy Where I Write and it kind of like for 2012 Twitter, it kind of like blew up, which is like nothing, probably like 10 people, but like it felt... <laughs> Like it blew up because everyone was leaving comments and Cheryl under the pseudonym of Dear Sugar started posting it and tweeting about it. And I didn't know who Dear Sugar was because no one did. She wasn't out yet. Right. Yeah. So um, we started talking and then eventually it came out that she was Cheryl and then she was really supportive of me. And then she saw I had, you know, this book coming out and she wanted to blurb it and everything. But we met online like in 2011. That's amazing. The anonymous factor too. And I feel like the rumpus kind of was more like that where the community around it was just like so rich at that time. It was amazing. I miss that so much. And I've gone back to be like, are those comments still there? But the comments are gone on the rumpus, which is kind of sad because I would love to go back and see. But I think all of the where I writes are still there. They should really keep that column. I wish they were still doing that one because it's a good one.
Okay, let's talk anthologies for a second because I think you've said in class or at some point that like contributing to anthologies was a boon for you and your early career. And so were you doing that before Legs Get Led Astray or during? Yeah, that's a good question. Nope, they started after Legs Get Led Astray. And again, this is where I think publishing online is helpful for people to find your voice and your name and like what your deal is because I think the first anthology I was in is Goodbye to All That, um, which was edited by Sari Botten. And she reached out to me and solicited me for it because she saw something I had written again on the rumpus about New York City. And this was an anthology about leaving New York City. So it was kind of the perfect, perfect fit. So that's how that had happened. She found, you know, she had seen my writing online. I think I also submitted to some, like if I ever saw a call for anthologies, I love that because yeah, I'm sure I've talked about it in class, but it's just like, you're given this gift of a theme and a deadline, which is a gift. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. It's a, a really good prompt. And then you, you send something out. So I did one called True Tales of Lust and Love. I think it was on like Seal Press or, or Feminist Press. And I connected with that person again from writing online. I wrote for this like addiction website called The Fix, which still exists. And the editor there was doing an anthology. So it's really like, it's all just communication and like getting your stuff out there and like, you know, meeting people online, I guess, and publishing online. But what I loved about that, actually about both of those anthologies was that they also did events for them. So then you would be able to like go do a reading. So they're great if you haven't published a book, but you want to get published and then maybe you can do a reading and then at the reading you meet other writers. So it's all, it's like you have to just continually be doing things because you never know how that energy exchange is going to, you know, work for you later. So now women, <laughs> what's the premise of women? The premise of women is kind of a stark story with a lot of white space and Elysian and it's an unnamed narrator who moves to a new city it's also an unnamed city and thinks that she knows like her sexuality and then meets someone who makes her question all of that and then from there they have an affair that is like really sexy and really romantic and beautiful and has a lot of toxicity to it at the same time. So it's like, it's really like a portrait of obsession. They both become obsessed with each other, but they're really bad for each other and they are not ever going to be able to work in the real world. They also have a 20 year age difference. Okay. So autofiction novella, you said 20,000 words. Obviously the premise came from life-ish, but like how, when did you decide to start writing about it and what was the process for that? I wrote that book so quickly. I mean, it's short, right? So of course you, you're going to write it more quickly, but um. I feel like I started that book in fall of 2013 and it was published in fall of 2014. Just Ooh. really fast. Like it's faster than like Scale Astray. I really churned that out. Yes, is definitely based on real life. And I think like, I don't know, just having a heartbreak like that where like you really think you're going to die. I don't know. I just, once I started writing it, I was really into it. And then I had some ideas like of a vision of like, the style and I knew I wanted it short. I really liked 
bluettes by Maggie Nelson, just maybe cliche, but it's helpful for me to have a vision of what I want my book to look like. So I was like, okay, it's going to be short. It's going to be slim. It's going to have a lot of white space. It's going to be the same length as bluettes. So just to have some kind of idea of what I was going for was really helpful with that book. And then at that time, I, I had never really read novellas I don't think so. I started getting tons of novellas at the library and reading them all the time. And most novellas are about like these obsessive relationships, which is interesting. So I was reading novellas, writing this novella. And that's how that's how it came to be. You knew you wanted to do small press going into it or that's like kind of the option with a novella. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. I think I was open. I was open. I didn't have an agent. You know, I haven't I didn't have an agent still. So I wasn't, you can't really bring it to big presses without an agent. And I was friends with, I am friends with Elizabeth Ellen, who runs Short Flight Long Drive Books. And she, this is really eerie, but <laughs> Chelsea Martin and I go to all the same presses, like within a year of each other. So she had just put ah. out a book by Chelsea. We're like on the same rhythm. We always put books out in six months from each other. Now we're on soft school together. It's so weird. So I just liked what Elizabeth was doing. She was doing a lot of cool books. She was also a friend. And the reason I connected with her and her press for women was actually we took a trip to Jamaica and we all like read each other's work. <laughs> Chelsea was there. Um, yeah, it was like kind of a loose workshop. And I had a version of women, which was 20 pages and it was called Roller Coaster. And it was just a draft. And Elizabeth really responded to it it gave me amazing feedback and was really into it as a project and really helpful. So I sort of asked her when the book was done, I was like, I think you should publish this book. And then she, at first she told me to go to a bigger, a bigger publisher, but I was like, no, I'm good. So did you ever write it as a nonfiction first? Was that roller coaster? Kind of maybe. Yeah. Okay. I think I, I think I probably did. You weren't like instantly like this is autofiction. No, I don't think I was instantly like this is autofiction, but I knew it was an essays and I knew it wasn't a memoir. Oh, okay. I was writing it with like those short, short prose with asterisks and stuff. So I sort of had this style of it, but I think it was more nonfiction-y at first. And then once it got bigger, it started to be a little more like experimental and change things around, bring in some imagination. And then I think once I started working with Elizabeth, who writes a lot of autofiction, she really encouraged me to do that and kind of showed me showed me the way. And then <laughs> the response to that was awesome, right? It was like a, an indie darling. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my perspective is different, of course, because like when it first came out, I remember being on tour with some writers and it was really quiet around women for a while, but it has such longevity. I get messages about it probably every week and it came out in 2014, you know, and I think that that's unique for a small press book. So yeah, it definitely, it just had this like steady, 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 steady thing. Usually with a book, it's like the first three months are busy and everyone's reading it and buying it. And with women, it was like the first three months were quiet and then it just exploded. And I think that was also when it had a lot going for it. It was when, um, celebrities were starting to post mm -hmm. pictures of books and <laughs> people really liked posting the book because I mean, they liked the book, but also the way it looked it's was so kind cute. of <laughs> mysterious and like became a thing. So like 
yeah, Zoe Kazan posted it. Lena Dunham posted it. I think Emily Ratajkowski, whatever, posted it, you know, and Emma Roberts. You know, that's a lot. That's a lot of celebrities to post a small press book. So yeah, it has longevity. I'm not sure how well it's holding up because things are really different now. And the way you write about like LGBTQ things are different. So that's very interesting to me. But again, it's like with Legs Get Led Astray. I'm glad that I captured what it was like in 2014, even though things are wildly different now. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it, it was like a sleeper hit then. I think it was. At least from my perspective, it was. So I'll tell you in person, you didn't have an agent for that either? I did. After women came out no right before women came out an agent wrote to me because again back to the anthologies she had seen my essay in goodbye to all that so that's another thing about anthologies it's like editors agents they're reading them so she had reached out to me so she didn't work on women but we did start working together so after the stuff with women like the initial stuff died down um she really encouraged me to do another essay collection and yeah, I worked on that for about a year. I don't know, a year, two years. I had already had some of the essays written and published. So it wasn't, it was a different experience. The other two books were more like from scratch. So I had maybe like, I don't know, a quarter of I'll Tell You in Person ready. And then from there, it was really conceptualizing it, thinking about themes. Yeah, that's kind of a quirky book too. And and I think, I, I think my, I'm good at finding the right homes for my books because I ended up with Coffee House. And I did have an agent and she really wanted to sell it to a big five. And of course I did too. But I felt really rushed with that book and I knew it wasn't, I knew it wasn't there. It could have been there maybe two years later, but it wasn't, it wasn't there. And I went on a bunch of meetings with all, you know, the random house and Riverhead and all these places. And I got some amazing rejection letters, which I think you've read, but ultimately no one wanted to buy it. And then what was happening during that time was that Emily Gould and Ruth Curry were starting Emily Books, which was an imprint at Coffee House. And I was out to dinner with Emily and she said, why didn't your agent submit it to us? And I was like, Oh, that's a really good point. So we submitted it to them and then they made an offer. And yeah, it, was a, it wasn't tough for me really, but there was a little pressure from my agent of like, what if you keep making it better and then we go back to the bigger? And I'm like, I just don't think that's wise. They can still say no. I don't know how much better I'm going to get it. <laughs> like, uh, I, think, uh-huh. I think this is it. You know, it is what it is. And it's kind of a quirky essay collection. It's kind of random in some ways. It doesn't have like a huge overarching thing. So I thought the best decision was to go with Coffee House. And, you know, Coffee House is just so great and so legitimate. And they've been around forever. They do amazing work. So when I was telling people, they're like, Coffee House is crazy. So I went with that. I'm so glad I did. They were an amazing publisher to work with. Fill everybody in on where you landed on themes and stuff for that one. And did you have those... I guess, how much changed during the editing process? Yeah. What was helpful to me was working with a subtitle, which I think we've done in our classes, or I know we've done. So I had a subtitle that was essays on intimacy and identity. And that guided me, like something as simple as that. I'm like, okay, these are what the essays Mm -hmm. are on. So how can I build those themes with each essay? So that was helpful. And then honestly, working with editors is helpful because they gave me feedback and 
places to develop, places that were weak, maybe places we needed to add a new essay. So I did write some brand new essays for the book as well. Okay, so Hungry Ghost, one of the key essays of that book. You have a person, like a real celebrity, but you just call them celebrity in the book. And I guess, how did you come to that decision? Yeah, I looked back at an old draft of, of that and I had used TV star throughout and that was too distracting. I don't know, using the celebrity, I mean, everyone knows who it is now. And I knew it it was like one of those things where it wasn't really a big deal of, it wasn't trying to protect who it was. It was just more maybe of a literary device of like making people wonder, um, which is kind of fun. And people did, and then they can project. And it's kind of like what I did with women, right? It's like, if I don't name the city, then everyone's going to think it's their city. So I thought that that, I don't know, I just thought that that was fun and maybe respectful to the person to not like be repeating their name throughout. Totally. And the music and the boys essay. So I know you had to do a little research into your past for that one. So how did you approach that? Yeah, that's an example too of the, what I was saying before of new essays I had to write because that was the new kind of big essay I had to write to connect some of the dots in the book. So that was fun. That was a fun challenge. I use music a lot for memory. So I was writing about the 90s. And yeah, it's true. I mean, I've written a lot about my 20s, but not so much as being a teenager. So I was a little foggy on on that. And also like when you smoke weed as a teenager, you like don't remember shit. So I used music. I like pulled up Spotify and was doing like all like, I went to like the exact year that I was writing about, which I think was 1999. And so I would go like, okay, all the ni- 1999 hits or whatever. And I just put them on as I was writing. And that really helped because music was such a big part of my life back then in like the radio. Right. So that was really helpful thinking about like what was on TV at the time, like MTV and behind the music cribs, all those shows. And then I reached out to people, which is probably not for everyone, but I didn't have a problem doing it. I wrote an email to, there's a friend in the essay named Nat and I wrote to his parents. <laughs> I asked them like what they remembered and they weren't that helpful. <laughs> they were like, I can't remember if I, I like almost got a good detail from them, but not quite. And then I asked my own mom for some reflections. Did um, she have good stuff? She had a couple things, I think. Yeah, she did. She did. And those journals, did they come in handy? The journals come in really handy. The journals come in really handy for teenage stuff. So that brings us to your latest book, The Red Zone. The premise of that book is? That book, The Red Zone, is a memoir through the lens of periods and PMDD and like what a life looks like through the lens of having your period. And then the other arc in it is meeting my husband during the throes of starting to have a condition called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD. Someone on, I did a podcast on like public radio and it was an amazing podcast, Courtney. And they, then I listened to it and they called it premenstrual psychotic disorder. Oh <laughs> twice, my God. <laughs> like, here's Chloe. She has premenstrual psychotic disorder. I was like, thank you so that much. such a funny mistake. <laughs> like, tell, me what, tell me what you really think. 
I thought you'd appreciate that. <laughs> so PMDD is really severe PMS. So it's really about learning to trust, learning to love, learning to grow, and then reflecting back on periods and hormonal changes um, and how to be in a relationship when you struggle with severe PMS or trust issues. Yeah, it's kind of, it's different. It's kind of hard. It's not that it's hard to explain. It's just, there's not really books of that genre. So you could call it, you know what people have said that I'm like, oh, that makes sense. is a menstrual memoir, which I like. We talked about it a little bit on Private Parts Unknown, but I love the decision to braid it. So you started with like an idea to do a year in the life of a period, and then you wound up braiding in all this like relationship stuff and what it's like to be a stepmom and the stuff with Tony. And I love that decision. How long did it take you to get there? Um, like four years, five years. <laughs> now, of course, like your book comes out and it seems upfront. People are like, cool, good book. You're like, yeah, it didn't <laughs> just come out like that. Isn't it wild? It's so nuts to me. Yeah, it took about four years to get there. Like I joke that I had like 175 structures. I tried a lot of different things with that book. And I think it's because it is the content was so different. And what I was trying to do was so different. Like writing an essay collection is kind of easier for me, because they don't have to be connected. You don't have to think about, okay, the narrative, like you do, and and that's great, but it doesn't, not as much relies on it. And that's what I loved about writing essay collections was like, oh, someone can open this and move, go to any essay. But I knew The Red Zone was going to be a memoir. I had never written a straight through memoir. So that was challenging. That was just challenging to think about, oh, what do I leave out? What do I keep in? Where is it boring? Where is it dragging? what's the arc if it's a cycle of a period how is there an arc but I think the arc ended up being yeah like meeting my husband and his daughter and so it was like an early relationship and a boyfriend and then by the end getting married and then going to a PMDD convention I think that helps the narrative but structure was huge for that book and I think I had wanted it to be experimental and it was a really loose structure for a while but that it just didn't didn't really work so it was so interesting, even in in the book, you're mentioning at one point that like you reach out to your agent and your agent's like, okay, I lost the vision or some some comment. Never like had a that. vision. You said she never know. had a vision. Yeah. How did you deal? Because it sounds like maybe your hardest editing process period for all your books. Period. Yeah. <laughs> period. <laughs> Apropos. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, I mean, I worked really hard on that book and I really challenged myself with that book. I mean, I could have talked myself out of it, right. About like writing a book about my period, but I just, I had such a strong vision and like, I'm pretty in touch. I teach classes. I like talk to people like you all the time in classes. I'm like, I know what people will read. Like, uh -huh. I know that people will read this and get it. So I felt really strongly about that. And yeah, so the agent thing, and this is why I warn people, like people think they get an agent and then their career's great or whatever, but that's not it. It's just a human. It's just a person. That's all it is. And I thought the same thing. I thought, oh, this is my big break because an agent had reached out to me and she's a pretty big agent, represents a lot of my contemporaries and had read women and loved women. Hadn't really mentioned my other books, but li liked women. <laughs> and <laughs> I signed with her for the red zone. Like we were under contract for that book. 
I'm not sure if she thought it was going to be more scientific or academic or, or what she thought, but whenever I emailed her or sent her questions or checking in or like whatever, she like wouldn't really get back to me for a while. And this went on, uh, let's see, I probably signed with her 2017 and I think we were done by 2019, but that's a long time. And it, and it affects how you feel about your work because this is the person who's supposed to be cheering you on. So I had sent her a draft of the red zone and I was waiting and waiting and waiting for her notes and waiting and waiting and really excited. And finally it's like a Friday at 6 PM. And I'm like, do you have the notes? And she said, she'd get them by the end of the day. She said, yeah, I'm scanning them in. And then the notes came in and there was like five notes on like a 250 page manuscript. There was just nothing. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And from there, I just thought, again, it's so hard to make these choices as a writer. You're like, oh, should I hang on? This person's going to get me money. You know, I should like, maybe I'm just a shitty writer. The book's really shitty. But I just didn't feel like, I felt like something was being unsaid. So I, the great thing about agents is that you can end your relationship with them really easily by putting it in an email, putting it in writing. So I emailed and I said, I don't, I don't think this is working out for me, but thank you. And then she admitted, yeah, I, I didn't have a vision for the book. And I was like, why didn't you tell me? I was thinking, why didn't you tell me that earlier? But ultimately it worked out better that way. Cause then I was able to like free myself from someone else's judgment and opinion and just do what I wanted to do and then find an editor, which was really what I needed. I needed more of an editor than an agent. And your editor from Soft Skull was like totally on board with the vision. Yeah. I mean, that's the first person I, the second person I submitted to and it was accepted. So uh, that's all you need is one person that understands the vision. It would have been so interesting though, Courtney, like to take this book out to the big fives and see what would they have said? Like, I haven't even <laughs> thought of that until now. Like the rejections on that would have been freaking phenomenal. Like, oh, we don't know how to market this. Like, or would they have taken it? I will never know, but I really needed support. And Yuka at Soft School totally got it, had great feedback, and we were so collaborative on it. And that was the right choice. But yeah, I really wonder what that would have been like. Well, I think you might like create, like you created a little bit of a template. Like, honestly, even with my own like ED kind of stuff, I've been like struggling with how to put that in a book. And I'm like, oh, that's such a good example, Chloe. <laughs> you know, like you probably will start a trend. <laughs> then I they'll totally so. know how to market it. <laughs> I hope, I hope. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So we talked about your agent journey. Um, Audible, you voiced, I'll tell you in person, but not any of the other books. How was that determined and what was that like? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't really remember. I think for Legs Get Led Astray, if that is an audiobook, I can't remember. I think they just, they didn't offer for me to read it. And it's just, they like pay you a small fee and you're like, okay, all good. And then women, same thing, I suppose. And I'll tell you in person, I, I guess was the first time I was offered to read and I said yes for the pay. It ended up to being kind of like, kind of a pain in the ass. For me, it wasn't really worth it. I know people say like, oh, I love when the author reads it. It was sort of, I don't know. It was like kind of embarrassing to read it. It was also kind of emotional. It was like, I had to travel like six hours away to do it. It just didn't, 
I didn't really get anything out of it. You're not like, oh, I need to do that next time I'm going to demand it or whatever. No, I'm not. And I wonder if I should be like, because I don't know. Yeah. My mom was like, oh, you have to read the red zone. I'm like, I'm not reading it. It's so much better. And then the red zone was great because they said, you know, they're like, oh, we want to, you know, buy the rights for audio or whatever. Um, here are three different voices reading the opening chapter and you can choose. And I was like, that's cool. And then I listened and I think having professional people is better because they can like do voices and they interpret the book differently than how I would read it. So I, I just think that they're better at it and I want them to do it. <laughs> I love that. That's great. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about like Cheryl and other mentor relationships. And I love that you and Chelsea have been kind of one-to-one the whole path, but what were the key things that you did to kind of like create your literary community? I think using Twitter <laughs> was how I created my literary community again, like back to 2012. Which you're no longer on Twitter. <laughs> I know. Isn't it ironic? I don't have to be because I have friends now. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, now it's like I make friends on Instagram, right? But I met a lot of people on Twitter back then. And I think my literary community was it was through going to a bunch of stuff. Like I would go to a lot of readings. I would go to AWP. I mean, I went once, but <laughs> I went once. I act like I go, I went once 10 years ago, but that was helpful at the time. And I did make connections there of people I'm still friends with. Right. And that was 2012. So one and done for AWP. Everyone's always like, are you going? I'm like, I'm good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Twitter. And then you know what I did actually that was really helpful that I always forget that I did was I ran a reading series in Hudson and I would just Facebook message people because that was what you did at the time and just say, hey, do you want to come up to take the train from New York to Hudson and I can host you and like have this reading and people would always say yes. So I got like some sick lineups. Like I had Melissa Phoebos read. This is at my dad's apartment, mind you. Like this is, this is a loft where my dad lives, but it was such a cool event space. So that's that's why I did it because we have this space. Melissa Phoebos read there, Jillian Lauren, I would read, I can't remember, uh, Elisa Albert, Sari Botton, a bunch of people. And I did that probably like six times and then everyone would stay in town and just hang out and become friends. So that I always tell people like, start your own thing, start a writer's group, start a reading series, start a storytelling series, a podcast, all of that helps. And what's next? You might not be able to share, but anything that you can share a future project and any bucket list goals? I would like to, I would definitely like to write a novel. I feel like anything I write, people are going to just think that it's nonfiction, even if it's a novel. <laughs> like, I would like to challenge myself to write a novel. I think it would be really fun. I think it'd be really hard, but ultimately rewarding. So I'd like to do that. I struggle with that because I'm like, oh, how do I do a plot? I think you just start, you just start going. So I'd like to do that right now. I'm a little bit on hiatus, but that's my, my bucket list. Yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really working on anything. I have like that in my brain. And then, you know, people approach me a lot back to the women thing. I still get emails of like, who owns the rights to this? Like, can I adapt this? And someone did adapt it, like wrote the entire screenplay and sent it to me. So I'm considering working with this person on it. Mm. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. Because it's been so long since women that I feel like enough time has passed that it could be interesting again. Yeah. Yeah. And cool for you to like be involved in the re 
imagining of it too. Yeah. And now for the postscript, just a few final pieces of advice. What piece of writing advice do you wish you could give your former self? <laughs> Learn how to check for typos and figure out how to use grammar. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and don't don't send things out before like proofreading them. One tip for writers trying to get a book published. Don't have fixed ideas of where you need to get the book published. It's really, if you're flexible and have an open mind to presses that aren't just Random House and Simon and & Schuster, you'll be able to get a book published. But if you're stuck in that that is success and other small presses aren't success and you're looking at it that way, it's gonna really, it's gonna hurt you. What's your all-time favorite piece of your own writing? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I have some favorite, I think like my, well, the ones that I think I worked hardest on and like came out the best are probably Hungry Ghost, Heroin and Acne, <laughs> Yes to Carrots, like we talked about. And then like, I do, I really, I really am proud of what happened with women and like what I did with that book. You absolutely must read women. That's an order. It's Pride Month, so it's literally required reading. And I also highly recommend Chloe's writing classes. They've been amazing for me. And make sure to give her a follow online. Um, I have some classes coming up. I have one, speaking of women, I have one like structuring the novella. And that's at the Fine Arts Work Center. And it starts June 20th. And it's a four-week online class, so anyone can take it. And then in August, I'm doing a one-month mentorship that might be ongoing. And I've actually never worked with them before, and I'm excited about it. It's with Write or Die Tribe. It's really cool. So it's a one-month mentorship, one-on-one. -on -one. And yeah, people can find me on, not on Twitter, but they can find me on Instagram at Chloe with four E's Caldwell. Thank you so much. This was awesome. And I loved getting to pick your brain a little bit. That's it for this edition of The Bleeders. If you missed the last episode with feminist noir author Hallie Sutton, author of The Lady Upstairs, make sure you go back and check it out. Here is a little preview. So after about six months of querying, I got a really, really nice rejection letter from an agent, um, Sharon Pelletier. And she sent me like eight paragraphs of feedback. Here's what I like about the book. Here's what's not working. Here's what I think you should revise. But it's always up to you. If you revise in a way that like you think is kind of something I might want to see again, I would see it again. And it was like a lifeline in the dark. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Bleeders. Writing is so much better with friends. I'm your host, Courtney Kosak, and I want to connect on social media. I am at Courtney Kosak, K-O-C-A-K, on Twitter and Instagram, and I always love to meet new writer pals online. And make sure you're signed up for the Bleeders Companion Substack. The link is in the episode description. And I hope you'll join me on Tuesday for our first ever edition of Work in Progress with Amanda McNeil. She is hilarious. You're going to love her. And in the meantime, happy bleeding. I hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode from the new podcast, The Bleeders. I really love the connection that host Courtney Kosak forges with her guests, 
such as Chloe Caldwell. If you want to listen to more episodes, check out the links to the Bleeders and their Substack newsletter in the episode description. I'll be back next week with another all-new episode of the book I had to write, which will wrap up season one for me. In the meantime, thanks for listening.